Welcome to The Itch, a podcast miniseries on penicillin allergy brought to you by SIDP. Greetings, everyone. My name is Jason Pogue. I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the Detroit Medical Center in, yes, you guessed it, Detroit, Michigan. On behalf of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to episode one of a three-part podcast series focusing on penicillin allergies. This episode, our first one, will focus on separating fact from friction with regard to penicillin allergy and some of the consequences that our patients get when they have an incorrect label of a penicillin allergy. If we do not annoy you too much in episode one, I encourage you to come back for episode two, which will focus on the implementation of penicillin skin testing as a methodology to get more patients on first-line beta-lactam antibiotics. In that episode, we will discuss the different types of practice models, the pros and cons of each approach, and key considerations that you, our loyal listeners, should take into account when deciding what model will work best for you. We will then wrap up our penicillin allergy mini-series in episode number three by discussing lessons learned from the field, where our expert panelist, who I will introduce you to shortly, will give you insight from the front line and clinical pearls related to skin testing, the impact of the test on patient outcomes, and finally, we'll look a little bit to the future, and we'll look at future directions for the management of these patients and where our experts really see this going. As I said, I'm Jason. I will be serving as your MC for this shindig. I'm joined by an absolute rock star panel of expert infectious diseases pharmacists in the field of penicillin allergy management, and it is a privilege for me to introduce them to you now. Our first panel member, you might know this man. He is kind of the godfather, if you will, of penicillin skin testing in the pharmacy nerd world. He is none other than the Bruce Jones, who serves as an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist at the St. Joseph's Candler Health System in Savannah, Georgia. Bruce also serves as a clinical adjunct assistant professor at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. Go dogs. Bruce, say hello to the millions of adoring fans listening to you right now. Glad to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right, Bruce. Our second panel member resides in every young girl's dream town, Rochester, New York. She is Mary Staiku, a rising star in the infectious diseases clinical pharmacy world. She's an ID clinical pharmacy specialist at Rochester General Hospital, as I said, in Rochester, New York. Welcome, Mary. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. And last, but certainly not least, we have the woman who needs absolutely no introduction, Dr. Julie Justo. She's an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist at the Palmetto Health Richland Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. We have some SEC rivals going head to head here. Julie, it's great to have you here. Say hi to the folks at home. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jason. All right. Now that you know our panelists, let's dive into it. Let's get into the nitty gritty here. You guys at home listening, you know the deal. You know the patient we're dealing with, right? The patient presents to you. They're acutely ill, maybe a little bit decompensated. You determine based off of their infection type, their past medical history, and risk factors for resistance that the optimal empiric regimen for this patient involves a beta-lactam. It usually does, right? However, you're on rounds, your team goes to enter the order, and a penicillin allergy pops up suggesting that that patient 
can't get your recommended empiric first-line therapy. Or do they? And that's really here what we're, we're about to talk about here today. We all know the basic facts, right? That 90% of patients aren't truly allergic to penicillin that have a reported penicillin allergy. That many of these patients were just told by a family member that they are allergic and they have no recollection of what that actual allergy is. But guys, that's the easy stuff. I could sit here and talk to you about that all day, but what I wanna do is I wanna turn to our experts. There's a reason we asked them to be here today. What are the myths that you commonly see on the front line? And, and, and what are the misconceptions and what are the consequences of those? So guys, the world is your captive audience right now. Every single person in the world is listening. What do you want to tell each of them about misconceptions related to penicillin allergies? Julie, I'm going to start with you. Thanks, Jason. So one of my favorite myths that I like to debunk is that once allergic, always allergic. And I think that's a myth that's on the patient side and also the provider side. You know, once that penicillin allergy label is there, it's very hard to get that off. And then one of the key features that I use and talk about in terms of education is the fact that even if a patient was truly penicillin allergic in the past, in that individual patient, in fact, those IgE antibodies to that penicillin often wane in production after about 10 years. And that's a really helpful piece that helps to mitigate the risk and kind of bring the alarm bells down when everyone's really concerned about um, giving uh, a patient a challenge with a beta-lactam. Um, another myth, that I think is fairly common is that all rashes are created equal. And this comes more to the fact of when we're actually doing allergy reconciliation interviews at the bedside, many providers neglect to delve a little bit deeper and probe the patient with close-ended questions to help differentiate the type of rash that they have. So for example, if a patient tells me that they have hives, um, I very rarely take them at their word because I've found that many patients may conflate the definition of rash and hives. And then if I ask them to describe it open-ended and round that out with some close-ended questions, they may actually be describing this red, blotchy, non-indurated rash, or what is more like a maculopapular red rash that is more associated with type 4 mediated reactions. So I think that's another common myth is that all rashes are created equal. And then the third and final one that I think is worth um, discussing is that if a patient is labeled as penicillin allergic, they're unlikely to have ever received a beta-lactam ever again in their lifetimes. So everyone um, in the healthcare system will have completely avoided trying something before. Um, and that's just, I think, a, maybe it's not necessarily a myth, it's just a perception that providers have. But if we do that extra detective work and do a quick search of both inpatient and outpatient records, we um, as a service typically find that patients have received beta-lactam courses that the patient, that individual patient has tolerated in the recent past. So those are three quick things that we kind of go through with patients and providers that I love busting um, on a regular basis. Thanks, Julie. That was excellent, excellent, showing the importance of really allergy reconciliation in those patients. Mary, I'm curious, do you have anything to add? I think mine is that alternative non-beta-lactam antibiotics are safe. So you have a patient that comes into the hospital with a penicillin allergy. And for one reason or another, a clinician is more likely to prescribe alternative antibiotics like fluoroquinolones or clindamycin or vancomycin. Or they're more likely to call infectious diseases for recommendations on alternative antibiotic use. And 
as we all are aware of, exposing our patients to these second-line antibiotics are not without risk, right? So numerous of these antibiotics have some pretty severe side effects. Um, they have black box warnings slapped on their label. Um, and we know now that a number of them are also associated with higher rates of being colonized with resistant organisms. So I think that prescribing second-line antibiotics, instead of just taking a little extra time to get a thorough penicillin allergy history or to retrieve prior antibiotic administration data, this is the culture that we need to start changing. Um, we need to start investigating these penicillin allergy labels a little bit more. We need to start utilizing our allergy colleagues, collaborating with them on, on delabeling these patients instead of just taking the easy way out and giving these second-line antibiotics. Yeah, Mary, if I can just jump in there, this is Julie. I definitely think that we've seen a lot of the same. A lot of our patients will have multiple courses of, say, levofloxacin over the last year in a row. And that kind of, unfortunately, goes against the tenets of good empiric antimicrobial selection. All right. Thank you, ladies, so much. Bruce, we have not forgot about you, I promise. What common myth would you like to bust for our friends at home, in the car, or most likely those taking a long romantic walk on the beach? Yeah, you know, Jason, I tell you honestly, for me, I think it's the cross-reactivity and the general assumptions that, that kind of come and are associated with that. You know, whether that's a penicillin to a cephalosporin or a penicillin to a carbapenem. And, you know, look, there are two sides. One is there's this fear of giving cephalosporins to penicillin allergic patients. And then on the other side, there's kind of a, almost an overcomfort in giving a carbapenem to those same patients. And, you know, we all know with penicillins and cephalosporins, they share that common beta-lactam ring structure. So, you know, there is potential for cross-reactivity. And you can also see that with similar R-group side chains. But the overall reaction rate in those patients, you know, if you truly are skin test positive penicillin allergic patients, we know from the literature that, you know, the chance of having a reaction to a cephalosporin is 3.4%. And if you look since 1980, since some of the new cephalosporins have come out, since some of the purity issues, I think, have, have kind of been fixed, it's about 2%. So, you know, the real take-home point, I guess, from that is if you exclude severe reactions, cephalosporins in general should be safe. And then on the other side of that with carbapenems, you know, we see here at least that everyone seems to just think they're 100% safe. And, you know, we know that it's a very low chance, probably about 1% of, of that cross-reactivity. But, you know, early on when we first started looking at penicillin skin testing, you know, we saw a lot of patients who, if you were penicillin allergic, it was almost a blanket order you received a carbapenem. Julie, I believe you've done some work on this. I remember reading a publication. You want to add on to that at all? Sure. Um, I'm actually kind of glad to hear Bruce say that because it makes me feel a little bit better about what we found at our institution. That phenomenon of penicillin allergy almost results in a carbapenem order. We found something similar when we looked at our patients with community onset bacteremia with Enterobacteriaceae. The incidence of carbapenem use in patients that were penallergic are quote-unquote case patients was like 27%. And then we looked at those that were controls that were non-penallergic and the incidence of carbapenem use was only 12%. So more than double the incidence of carbapenem use. The good news though is that what we also found was over this multi-year time span when we implemented stewardship and at that point we were just doing thorough allergy reconciliations, like the type that Mary was advocating for, that was independently associated with a decrease in the risk of being prescribed carbapenem at baseline. And so that that's some interesting stuff that uh, suggests that at least at one center, you know, you can move the needle even just by doing 
thorough um, allergy interviews. That, that's great to hear. I mean, anytime that we can put a stewardship process in place to limit unnecessary carbapenemuse, it's something we're certainly looking for. So that raises an interesting thought to me though, right? So I know when we're clinically managing these patients who have an inappropriate penicillin allergy and you try to intervene, you know, you go to the clinician, you go to the frontline physician and, and you talk to them about their penicillin allergy and how it's probably not legit and all of these things, and, and you get this pushback, right? You say, yeah, you, you hear that physician say, yeah, my, my patient probably, or any clinician really, my patient probably doesn't have a penicillin allergy, but why can't I just use Aztreonam? Beta-lactam alternative, right? No cross-reactivity. I still get a quote-unquote first-line agent in my patient. What gives? Why can't I do that in that situation? This is Julie. I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. I think that SGNM may work as a viable option for patient cases in which anti-pseudomonal coverage is warranted. Although the caveat to that, I'll say at our local site, we actually don't report SGNM routinely. Therefore, we don't have reliable antibiogram susceptibility rates locally at our site. And so I might quote you a terrible susceptibility number against SGNM and pseudomonas of maybe 50% susceptibility. But then I look and it's only like six isolates that we reported in aggregate. And so we have to take that information with a grain of salt. And on top of that, while I may not completely trust my susceptibility data for s and therefore it makes Empiric use difficult, even if I do use it, it's unnecessary for a lot of patients that have pen allergies that really don't warrant Empiric antipsychotic coverage. So while s is a good tool in the toolkit. It's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. Interesting. Mary, do you agree with that? Do you see issues with estrenium use as well? Yeah, Jason, I'm so glad you brought this up. I feel like estrenium is my Achilles heel in a sense. It was the first project that I worked on related to penicillin allergy. And pretty much any patient that was admitted to RGH with a penicillin allergy was guaranteed a prescription for estrenium, regardless of the severity. So we were giving it for patients that had even intolerances documented, like nausea, vomiting, or itching, or unknown reactions. And we were spending upwards of $200,000 a year on estrenium uh, expenditures. Um, I think the last time I, I looked, the average wholesale price of estrenam for, I think it was two grams every eight hours, was about $250 a day. Um, and similar to what Julie described, we were also seeing a significant plummeting of our pseudomonas susceptibilities. So we put an intervention in place. We directed providers and our pharmacists to utilize more cephalosporins in those patients that had a mild to moderate penicillin allergy history. Um, and since 2013, we've reduced and sustained our estrenam usage by 85%. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here too. I, I'll tell you, look, Jason, nobody wants to hear that their baby is ugly, but as Trianam is, it's an ugly drug. All right. <laughs> you know, it's from, we can go through the cost side of it. It's very expensive. You can go through the poor spectrum of activity. You know, I'll echo both uh, Julie and Mary here on the susceptibility side. We, about three years ago, we moved, we changed our susceptibility cards and we currently don't have as Trianam on it anymore. So that's an issue for us not being able to test it, especially on the, the automatic cards. But even when we were testing it, we were seeing maybe 65% uh, susceptibility at best for pseudomonas. And even with some of the other gram negatives, it's just not a very good drug. 
Okay, 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 guys. I'm convinced. Ugly baby. Got it. Just say no to as Trianam. As a steward, this is something we should push back on. We should we should we should bust these myths surrounding as Trianam being okay for our patient. So we've talked about common misconceptions. We talked a little bit about the negative consequences. You guys just brought up some good ones with as Trianam if we don't appropriately reconcile our penicillin allergies in our patients. Before we end this first podcast, panelists, and I'm going to start with you, Julie, are there any other major myths that you feel need busted? Again, think of our audience out there, folks that might be looking to implement this in their own institution. What myths do they know commonly need to be busted? I'm not sure if it's a myth per se, but it's certainly like a thought in terms of, I think a common misconception is that you know, patients may not necessarily be able to help us in our cause or may not be interested in being delabeled from their penicillin allergy because of fear of having a reaction. And so in my practice, most of the myth, myth busting, as I alluded to before, is actually needed on the patient side versus the provider side. If we can quell patient fears regarding penicillin allergy and gain their trust that, hey, I'm trying to find the most uh, efficacious and safest agent for you, hence why I'm asking you these questions, all of a sudden they become really engaged and interested. And we can start describing the risks of being labeled as penicillin allergic, as you know, Mary had alluded to before in terms of you know what are the risks versus benefits of using alternatives. And through this conversation and discussion with patients directly, we can actually gain patients as allies in the fight against this inappropriate penicillin allergy labeling that seems to be fairly rampant in our healthcare system. Julie, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's time to empower the patient in, in their penicillin allergy and how they want to manage their penicillin allergy. We uh, currently have an ongoing study that's looking at patient knowledge and perception of penicillin skin testing. Um, and we have preliminary findings, but they're really interesting. They, Not unexpected, of course, but they show that the minority of patients interviewed had really no prior knowledge that even a skin test exists. And one finding that I thought was really interesting was that only one in 10 respondents indicated that their PCP had discussed penicillin skin testing with them in the past. So I think we have a lot of work to do to spread the good word and educating patients as well as clinicians. You know, and it's funny, Mary, I, I would even jump to the other side of that. It's uh, in interesting kind of as I sit here and think about it, the provider side of it. I think one of the big myths is an assumption that we as pharmacists or we as physicians are the experts when it comes to allergies. You know, I look at what I've even learned over the past five years. You know, it's not something we get as part of our training, whether it's students, whether residents, whatever it may be. So I think just assuming that all of us as providers are, are experts and really getting out there and educating providers on things like these podcasts, you know, things at, at certain meetings we go to and attend. That was excellent, guys. And so I, I certainly learned something of the need to engage the patient. And I think that our audience will appreciate that, that insight and that knowledge. I'd like to thank each of our panel members one last time in this podcast. Julie Justo from Columbia, South Carolina, Bruce Jones from Savannah, Georgia, and Mary Staiku coming from Rochester, New York. I encourage you at home, our loyal listener who has at this point officially listen to every single SID podcast that has ever been produced <laughs> to join us back here 
for part two of this series. And in part two of this series, we're going to focus on implementation strategies for penicillin skin testing. So this is a methodology where you can actually check to see if those patients are allergic or not. We're going to talk about implementing that in different settings. And our expert panelists, you'll note them from this one that you're listening to right now, will weigh in with some, with some real tips from the front line along those lines. This is Jason Pogue from the Detroit Medical Center. I want to thank you all for joining us. I really do thank our panel members for coming together, putting this podcast series on. There's so much good information in here as well. Until next time, have a great day. This podcast series is supported by an unrestricted medical educational grant from ALK, the makers of PrePen.